0: All right, good evening, everybody. You want to go ahead and find your seats? It's 7 o'clock, so we will go ahead and uh, get started. If you got your Bibles, we have got a lot to cover tonight. Um, We're going to try to get a lot of verses into a short amount of time. We're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 16. And we're going to make our way all the way to Romans 11, verse 10. So Romans 10, 16 through eleven ten, and the title of our lesson tonight is just simply uh, Israel. All right, so we're going to finish up first uh, Romans 10. Now, as I said, we're starting in verse 16, but I want to remind you of what Paul has said just a few verses earlier in verses 12 and 13. He says this, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, for everyone who calls on the name of that Lord will be saved. So what Paul has told us in Romans 10 is there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. None at all. When it comes to salvation, the path of salvation for both is exactly the same. You will hear some people say uh, from time to time that Jews are saved just because they're Jews. That is not true. The Bible does not teach that at all. There is one path to salvation. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other. So they both have the same way to be saved, which is simply to call on the name of the Lord. Now, that brings us to a problem though, because down through history, Gentiles have come to faith in Christ in much larger numbers than, than Jews have the, the number of Jews coming to Christ is, has always been fairly small I think it's in John uh, I think it's in Revelation uh, chapter 7 John says he saw before the throne dressed in white robes a num, uh, a, an amount of people that was innumerable you couldn't even count them and the vast majority of those are going to be Gentiles very few will be Jews let me give you an example as you can see on the screen today in Israel there are nine million people. Best guesses or best estimates to the number of Jewish believers in Jesus is about 15 to 20,000. Now that's not 20%. That's not 2%. (laughs) That is 0.22%. So less than one quarter of 1% of the nation of Israel are believers in Jesus Christ. Now you got to ask yourself Why? Why, why are the numbers of Jewish people coming to Christ so small? Well, Paul is going to deal with that at the end of chapter 10. He's going to deal with two possible excuses as to why there are so few Jews coming to believe in Jesus. The first excuse he's going to look at in verse 18, he says, But I ask, have they not heard? Have they not heard that the gospel is open ...to everyone that all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. That's the first excuse. Maybe they haven't heard. The second excuse is, did they not understand? Maybe they heard it, but they just didn't understand what the gospel was saying. Maybe they just didn't quite get it. So these are the two excuses that they're going to, that he's going to deal with. Now, the first thing he does is he lays out the problem. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel... For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now let's start at the bottom and work back up. Paul is saying, we saw last week in verses 13 to 15, how how can they call on him who they've not believed? How can they believe on someone who they've not heard? So Paul says uh, uh, faith or belief comes from hearing, and hearing about the gospel of Christ, or the message of, of Christ. So the message is going out, But unfortunately, both in Isaiah's time and in Paul's time, they're not believing. They're not coming to faith in Christ. They're not obeying the message of the gospel. So he wants to deal with these two excuses. So the first one that he's going to deal with, and I'm having a problem here, so give me just a minute. So the first one he's going to deal with is maybe they haven't heard. Maybe they haven't heard the, uh, the gospel. All right, hold on. Hold on one second here, and I'll get it going. I thought we was through this. Oh, there we go. All right, here we go. Have they not heard? Look at verse 18. He says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now, he's quoting there Psalms 19. So what he's saying here is, has the conditions of sending and preaching and hearing been met in order that they can believe and he says absolutely they have now this is a little bit tough in what he does because he's quoting psalm 19 and we should all probably be familiar with psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of god david here is talking about what we call natural revelation that if you go out into the out tonight you look at the stars you look at the sky the constellations and all of that that is screaming out that god is real That's what we call natural uh, revelation. And, and, And David says in Psalm 19, their voice goes out to any language. It goes out to all the earth. And Paul is referencing this passage. So what Paul is doing is he's borrowing this passage, if you will, and he's saying the same way that natural revelation goes out, in the same way the gospel goes out, to the whole, the whole earth, right? It goes out to all of Israel. It's going to extend out in his day. It had already gone out to the Mediterranean and down into Africa. it's going to continue to go out. So he said, "That's not the problem. The problem is not that the Jews have not heard; they have heard." So here again, he's just simply stressing that the gospel has been preached, but they are still not believing the gospel. Now. The next question he handles is, did they not understand? Look at verse 19. He says, but I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Now there he's quoting Deuteronomy 32, 21. I want to read this passage because I love the word play here. This is the word of God. He says this in Deuteronomy. They have made me jealous with what is not a God, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So God says, you've, you've left the true God for idols, for something that's not a God. So he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go to those that are not a people. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, by the way, this is in Deuteronomy where God is already saying, I'm going to reach out to a people other than you. So Paul is referencing Moses. By the way, the Old Testament is the law and the prophets, right? The law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Moses always represents the law. So what he's saying here is the law told you way back in Deuteronomy what God was going to do, that the gospel was going to go out to everyone. Salvation was going to be offered to everyone, even your own law has told you that from the very beginning. Then in verse 20, watch what he does. He says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And he's quoting Isaiah 65. Notice what he does here. The Old Testament is the law and the prophets. He's already referenced the law in Moses. Now he represents Isaiah or or references Isaiah who represents the prophets. And he said, Isaiah told you that one day God would reach out to a people beyond the Jews, that he would offer salvation to a people beyond the Jews. And so, again, he's just saying they, they knew about this. They can't say that they didn't understand. And then verse 21, he gets to the problem, the last verse of the chapter. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, in the end, Paul told us in Romans chapter 9 that Israel is lost. They are accursed. They are cut off from Christ. And here we know why. It's not because they haven't heard. The the message of the gospel has been preached all over uh, Israel. It was preached in the Old Testament. They understood it. Even their their supreme lawgiver, Moses, and and one of their most respected prophets, Isaiah, told them what was going to happen. That's not the problem. The problem is they are a contrary and disobedient people, Paul says. It's just plain old uh, rebellion. Now, let me quickly summarize chapter 10 before we leave it. What Paul wants us to see in chapter 10 is the gospel is not a local religion. It's not a a Roman mystery cult. It's not a a religion that's confined to a particular tribe or a particular uh, nation or a particular uh, people group. The gospel is the good news of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ that goes out to all the world, right? It is a everyone uh, who can cause on the name of the Lord religion. It is a whosoever will may come uh, religion. It goes out to everybody. But tragically, in Paul's day, many of the Jews rejected it because of that very reason. They could not accept a message that that brought Gentiles in and gave them and put them on an equal standing with Jews. They just couldn't accept that. They were the chosen people. They were the apple of God's eye. They were the special ones. Any message that said, "Hey, all these Gentiles are—they're uh, just like you," they couldn't accept that. Even though the law and the prophets had told them it was going to happen. By the way, as we're going to see it in a minute, Jews today still reject Christ. And one of the main reasons they do it is exactly that. They still see it as a Gentile religion. They see it as a Gentile message. They see Jesus as a Gentile Savior. They just cannot accept the fact that God has brought this gospel to the whole world. So we come to the end of chapter 10. And just as it was when we started in chapter 9, Israel is lost. As a corporate nation, they are completely lost. Lost, They are cut off from Christ. Now, here's the question as we come into chapter 11. Is this permanent? Is their unbelief a permanent thing? Is the fact that they are hard and not believing, is that permanent? And Paul is going to answer that question in chapter 11. Okay, so if you got your page, you can turn it over and we'll begin to walk into chapter 11. Now, as we get to chapter 11, I want to give you a brief overview of what chapter 11 is about. Um, chapter 11 is all about the nation of Israel and God's plan for her. Okay, that's what chapter 11 is, is all about. Now, we got to ask this question. Here we are in little Walkilla County, a bunch of Gentiles. I'm not even sure if I, I know any Jews. And I got to ask, why in the world should we care? Two, a couple weeks ago, I asked, why should we care about Israel in the Old Testament? And I answered that question. Tonight, I want to ask, answer the question, why should we care about the nation of Israel today? They're just a little, old, little, tiny country on the other side of the world, seemingly having nothing to do with you and I, okay? So why should we care? Well, I'm going to answer that question by asking another question. And the question I want to ask is, how are you and I, have you ever thought about this? How are you and I to know God? One of the greatest privileges in the world that you and I can have is to know God, to know who he really is. But how do we do that? How do we know who God is? Well, let me tell you how you don't do it, and that is human opinion counts for nothing. What you think about God or what you feel about God, who he is, what he, how he should act, that means diddly squat. That, that means nothing. Now, I, I don't, no, opinion means nothing ...when it comes to who God is, okay? If we're going to know God, the only way we can know Him is if He reveals Himself. We can't send a satellite into the heavens and do a study on God. doesn't work that way, does it? If, he's going, if we're going to know Him, He has to take the initiative. And He has to reveal Himself to us. Now, He does that in four ways. The first way He does it is through nature... Okay, we saw Psalms 19 said it, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And by the way, one of the greatest things about the age we live in is the more that science advances, the more that we study, the more we should see God. I I, I forget the the guy's name that that, uh, decoded DNA. And he said when he looked at it, he said that's the fingerprint of God. And he's right. I watched a thing on DNA the other day. It is so incredibly complicated that it just blows people's minds. And we should look at it and say, that's God. That's my God. That's the intelligence of the God I serve that did that. So that, what, a, what a privilege that is for us to live in a day and a time where science is not disproving God. Science, every scientific discovery is just showing more and more in nature, that God is, is this incredible creator and builder and designer and architect. So that's the first way he does it. The second way he does it is through our conscience. We talked about this last week, Romans chapter 2. The law is written on our heart. The third way he does it, according to the book of Hebrews, is through Jesus Christ. He says in, the, in former days he spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days he spoke to us by his son jesus christ now the fourth way he does it is the bible of course is his word and that's the one i want to focus on for just a moment there's this crazy thing about the bible when you open the bible and begin to read it it is absolutely full of history and we take it for granted but folks that's unusual when you look at other quote holy books around the world things like the quran or things like the buddhist bible or the hindu scriptures they have very little very little history in them at all but the Bible is full of history. Just open it up and start reading. It's places and times and dates and nations and peoples. And it's very specific. It's all—it's it's just incredibly full of history. And here's why that's important. Because all of history is a story being written by God. In fact, including what's happening to us right now. This is all part of, of God's plan. All... Everything is slowly and inexorably moving forward. And Israel is at the center of that story. It's always been at the center of that story. 4,000 years ago, it was at the center of the story. And here we are today, and it's still at the center of the story. In fact, all of history is heading right there. All of history is going right there. That's a little valley in Israel called Megiddo. In the Hebrew, it's called Armageddon. Everything right now, all the stuff that's going on is just slowly, day after day, heading right there to a little, little country on the other side of the world. Folks, we need to care. We should keep our eyes open. Watch them because that's, that's the center of the story that God is writing. Now, listen, this is why chapter 11 is so important. Because it helps us understand Israel's place in this story God is writing. And the more we understand this story God is writing, the more we understand God. Okay, So, so Israel is important and we need to understand what God's plan for her is. So, let's turn to chapter 11. You get to the very first verse and Paul just immediately makes his main point. And his main point is this, God has not... Rejected his people. Okay, look at verse one. He says, I asked then, Has God rejected his people? Talking about Israel. And his answer to that is no, by no means. Now, he's answered the question. He needs to support that. He needs to give an argument for that. And he gives three of them. His first argument to show that God has not rejected Israel is that Paul himself is an Israelite. Look at the, the remainder of verse 1. He says, God has not rejected Israel, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul said, look look at me. I'm, an, I'm a living, breathing example that God is still saving Jewish people. I am a believer. I am a follower of Christ. I am a preacher of the gospel, and I am a Jews. So Paul says, just look at me. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a argument number one that God is still saving Jewish people. Now, here's his second argument. God foreknew Israel. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, we talked about that word back in chapter 8. Everybody remember that, right? Foreknew can mean two things. It means you foreknow something about someone or something. You, you know a piece of information before it happens. Or it means that you foreknow somebody, you have a relationship with them, right? Which one does it mean here? Does it mean that he, 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 he knows something about Israel? Or does it mean that he knows Israel in an intimate way? Well, the, the clearest answer to this is found in the book of Amos. Look at Amos 3.2. God says this, you only, talking to Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, this obviously is not saying, God's not saying, oh, I didn't know anything about the other people. I only knew you, right? That's not what he's saying. God knows everything about everyone. He knows the hairs that are on our head. He knows everything. That's not what he's saying. This isn't talking about a head knowledge. This is talking about a relationship. You only have I chosen. You only have I set apart. You only have I made holy. You only have I sought out and, and brought into a relationship. You only have I known in the way that a husband uh, knows a wife. I, I, you only. You're the only people that I've chosen to have a relationship with you. Now, Paul looks at that, and what he sees is a covenant commitment between God and Israel that cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. Now listen to me. This is important because from time to time, you will hear people say that Israel has no future, that God has replaced Israel with the church, and that we are now the apple of his eye, and Israel is, uh, is forgotten. Listen, don't believe that for a second. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm going to give you two arguments about that. I'm going to give you two scriptures and I'm going to back up. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. Let's go to the Old Testament first. And here's what I want to show you. There is a future for corporate Israel, okay? Now, what you have to understand is when Paul talks about Israel, he's talking about Israel as a nation. He's not necessarily talking about every Jew that's ever lived. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel as a nation. And there is a future and a plan ...for Israel as a nation because they are elect. They are chosen by God. Let me give you two scriptures. The first one is in Jeremiah 31. This scripture alone should put that argument to rest. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-five to 37 says this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day... ...and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord... Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So God says, I put the moon up there and I put the stars and the constellations and I've set this fixed order and they all orbit and they all move in a certain way. And God says the day that that fixed order departs from me will be the day that I stop supporting Israel. In other words, that ain't going to happen. I'll give you the rest of it. Uh, Thus says the Lord, it goes on. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they've done. So he says, okay, if you can measure the universe, take a tape measure up there and measure it, or if you can go down into the core of the earth and explore what's down there, the day you can do that will be the day that I cast off Israel. In other words, it ain't going to happen. Now, Paul goes on and and later on in Romans 11, 28 to 29, we won't get there tonight. He says this, as regards the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies of God for your sake. Talking to the Gentiles. But as regards election, as regards being chosen by God, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, folks, that ought to make the hair stand up on the back of your arms right there. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If that's true for Israel, it's true for me. That's true for Israel, that's true for me. They're irrevocable. I have been called, I have been chosen, I have been saved. And I I, I, I mean, wow, <laughs> that is just awesome. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God will not take it back. Once He's made a promise, He keeps that promise to the end. He'll do it for me, and He's doing it for Israel. There's this, Now to his third argument, the remnant. Look at verses 2 through 4. Do you not know, Paul says, what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. I'm assuming everybody here knows this story but just in case you don't, you can find this story. Go home tonight and read it in First Kings 19. Elijah is, is, Israel has gone in the, it's, it's in the toilet, man. It's being ruled by a guy named Ahab. He's married a, a lady a, a named Jezebel. They are as bad as it gets. They've killed all the prophets of God except for a few that are hiding in caves. And there's only one active prophet that's out there prophesying. And that is a man named Elijah. And all this stuff is going on. And one day Elijah comes, to, he decides we're going to have it out. So he calls 450 prophets of Baal. And they all come out and all the people come out to watch what's going to happen. And it's just one of the greatest stories in the Bible. And, 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 and he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, put, we're going, we're going to sacrifice this, this animal. We're going to put it up there on this altar. And y'all go first. Call down fire from Bell. Let's see what Baal can do. And of course they get out there, and I think if I remember reading it right, it took four hours. They had four hours. And they're praying and dancing and shouting, and they start cutting themselves with knives. There's blood all over. And, and, I, and Elijah makes one of the greatest statements in the Bible. He says, Maybe he's going to the bathroom. That's literally what he said. Ain't that right, Brother Bill? He said, Where is he? Maybe he's maybe he's going to the toilet. That's what he said. I mean, Elijah's awesome, man. And so finally, they give up and Elijah steps up and he says, dig a trench around it, go get some water, make it all wet, and go get some more water and make it all wet. And he just steps up and says a simple prayer. And fire from heaven comes down and consumes it. And he says, seize those prophets and he takes a sword and he slays 450 men. What a man of God. And then Jezebel hears about it. And she said, you tell Elijah, the gods do the same to me if I don't have his head by tomorrow. And he got scared to death. Why in the world he could face 450 prophets, but one woman? We won't go any further than that right there. He got scared to death. So he's running. He's out in the woods. Now he's all feeling sorry for himself. He's whining. He's crying. God, they killed everybody. They broke your orders. It's just me, left. And Paul says this. What is God's reply to him? I have kept 7,000 men for myself that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not by yourself, son. i got 7,000 men that have worshipped me. I, I've kept them. I've guarded them. Now see, when Paul looks back at those 7,000 men, he understands something very clearly. Those 7,000 men are chosen by God. When, he said, when, when, when God says, I've kept them, he means I did that. I kept them. I guarded them. I didn't let them go off into unbelief. I caused them to remain faithful. So here's Paul's argument in verse 5. So too, in the same way, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, that was true in Elijah's day. That was true in Paul's day. And folks, it's still true today. There are still Jews for Jesus today. There are organizations in Israel like One for Israel and Jews for Jesus that are working to get Jews saved. There, are, there is still a remnant today. There's always been a remnant chosen by grace. Now, Paul has just said something and he wants to make absolutely sure we understand what he means by that. What does he mean by chosen by grace? Look at verses 5 and 6 and let's read them together. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, I want to make sure we understand what Paul's doing here. Okay, I want to make sure we understand not only what he's doing, but what he's saying. If you've read the New Testament for very long especially Paul's letters, you get very used to Paul contrasting faith with works, right? For example, Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith, not works. Romans 9.32, they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So a lot of times that's what Paul is doing is contrasting faith with works, faith and works. And when he does that, what he's doing, he's contrasting two human activities, Works, listen to me, this is a really good definition. You might want to write this down. Works are something we do to try to earn God's favor. Faith is something we do to receive God's favor. Let me say that again. Works are something we do to earn His favor. Faith is just something we do to receive His favor. That's a big, big difference. Those are two human activities. But that's not Paul. what Paul is saying here. He's not contrasting faith and works... He's contrasting grace and works. He's not contrasting two human activities. He's contrasting a divine activity, grace, with a human activity, which is works. And this is what he's trying to say. His point is this remnant occurs by one or the other. It is either an act of God, which is grace, or it is an act of man, it is works. It cannot be both. It can't be both. If you try to work at it, if you try to do any of that, Paul just said it, grace would no longer be grace. If God's choosing, if God's keeping for himself a remnant, is based on anything those people do, then Paul says grace is no longer grace. It's all grace or it's all works. You cannot mix the two. No way, no how. Now, by the way, that is foundational to Christianity. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith... This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Say it with me. Not a result of works. Not a result of works. It is a gift. That's it. It's grace. That is foundational to Christianity. Now, here goes Paul again, though. Paul just don't know when to stop. He's going to do the same thing here in chapter 11 that he did in chapter 9. He just, he just can't stop. He, that was great what you just said, Paul. Stop. But Paul doesn't stop because he wants us to know how sovereign our God is. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel, again, he's talking about Israel as a whole, as a corporate nation, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The, the elect, the chosen, the remnant, obtained it. Okay? But the rest were hardened. Here he goes again, right? Now, can we be honest? Who in the world talks like that anymore? Who, who says stuff like that anymore? Obviously, if we were writing this today, we need to rewrite that. Nobody says that anymore. Nobody says God hardens people. So what, we're gonna, what we need to do is really rewrite this so it's more in line with our modern culture. Okay, so I'm going to rewrite. Is that okay with you guys? I'm going to take out the word elect, and I'm going to put in the word believers. And I'm going to take out the word were hardened, or the phrase were hardened, and I'm going to put in the phrase refuse to believe. Now let's read it together. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The believers obtained it, but the rest refused to believe. (laughs) That's better, isn't it? That you could preach on TV. That you could preach on Sunday morning, right? That's a good message. Now, obviously, I'm being sarcastic. Everybody got that, right? I'm being sarcastic, but do you understand that that is absolutely 100% true? That's 100% true. The believers obtained it. The rest refused to believe. That, That is true. And how easily Paul could have written that and avoided the controversy that so many today try to avoid. They just, they just reword it. They don't talk about heart and they just say refuse to believe. So but Paul could have avoided it, but he didn't, did he? He didn't. Why? Because he's not interested in your belief or unbelief. He's interested in a sovereign God. He's interested in you knowing God and who God is and, and how omnipotent and, and powerful and majestic and sovereign and great the God is that we Serve. Now, he just said God did some hardening, so now he's going to go on and explain how God has hardened Israel. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very There he's quoting uh, Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 uh, to get that that quote. Then he goes on to, uh, he moves up into the Psalms, talking about David. And he says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. He's quoting Psalm 69. Now, what does that mean when he says, let their table become a snare? Well, the table just stands for the normal good things of life. Think about just the good things about life, right? We get together, we, we, we eat, we drink, we fellowship, we have family, we have friends, we, we spend a day at the beach in, in, in God's nature, we, we get to go fishing and just hanging out. Just, it's what a great world this is, right? It really is. Wonderful blessings God has given us. Until those things become a trap for you. And you say, well, how can good things become a trap? When you find your pleasure in those things instead of in God, they have trapped you. They have become a snare. When you find, let your physical appetites for pleasure or sex or whatever, when those things become your focus and those become what your life is all about and you're not looking to God, folks, you are caught in a trap. Your, your table. This beautiful, wonderful table that God has set for us has become a snare for you. As Paul says somewhere, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Now, I want to look at one other thing in there. Look at verse 9 again. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. Now, that word's important. That word means payback. It means punishment, what they deserve. See, what we understand is one of the reasons God is hardening here has to do with punishment of wrong. They have done something wrong. They, they, They deserve something. They deserve the judgment of God. And God is hardening them for that very reason. Which means we are dealing with things like guilt and accountability when God hardens. By the way, we'll see this taught later in Romans 11, verse 20. He says, they, talking about the the, the non-remnant, the ones who aren't believing, were broken off because of their unbelief. Okay? But you stand fast through faith. Here again, as always, I'll bring it up. We see the sovereignty of God in saving by grace and hardening, but we also see the responsibility of man. These two things are both taught equally in Scripture and just in in absolute perfect balance. Listen, let me say this one thing. When God draws us to Himself, opens our eyes and opens our hearts so that we can see Him for the beautiful treasure and wonderful God that He is, that owes nothing to us. And it is grace and grace alone that He did that. And by the way, when He passes over others... And leaves them in their unbelief. He's not doing any injustice to them. Okay, They are deserving of judgment. What we have to remember is we are just as deserving of judgment as they are. Yet we've been shown mercy. We've been shown mercy. And because of that, folks, listen, we should be the humblest, most patient, most thankful, most forgiving, kindness, courageous. We should be a people unlike any others because of what God... ...has done for us. Verse 10. This will be our last verse tonight. Paul goes on. He says, let their eyes... ...still quoting David in Psalm 69. He says, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see... ...and bend their backs forever. That bend their backs, that is a universal uh, symbol of carrying a burden. And I, I believe this is almost certainly a picture of a people... ...who are spend their lives trying to earn their righteousness... They spend their lives trying to earn their way to heaven. And it literally, how, I don't even know the word for this. Can you imagine going through life, carrying that burden, earning, 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 trying to be a good person, failing, just, and it's an impossible task. And Jesus is standing there saying, come unto me, all all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Rest is right there. It's in your mouth, the word of faith which we speak. Call on the name of the Lord and your burden is gone. And yet these people bend their backs forever. they always trying to earn their way to God. One final thing. Let's go back to verse 8 real quickly. It says this, As it is written, Paul said, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 29. This is Moses. And Moses says this, To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, here's what we need to understand. The hardening began with Moses. 1,400 years before Paul sits down to write Romans, Moses says, you are a, you are a stubborn, obstinate, rebellious people. They were already hardened at that time. 1,400 years go by. And Paul says the hardening is still going on. By the way, you saw the statistics I gave you earlier. It's still happening today. Israel is still being hardened today. Next week, folks, we'll see that that hardening is for us. That hardening has a purpose, and the purpose was to bring us into the kingdom. We'll see that next week. How long is it going to last? Paul will tell us in Romans eleven twenty five. 25, he says this, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's coming a day when the hardening will be removed. And the Bible says that all of corporate Israel will be saved. And we'll carry that on next week. When's it going to happen? That's up to God. God has appointed a day and a time when that hardening will be uh, removed. And it will happen when he has uh, ordained it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, I, I, first of all, I want to thank everyone, uh, God, just for being so patient, going through Romans 9 and Romans 10 and now through Romans 11. We're heading to Romans 12, and there's going to be some great stuff there. But, God, this is important. And, and, and your people have just been so faithful to come and sit and listen and study uh, your word. God, I ask you to put a burden on each one of our hearts for the nation of Israel, that each one of us would, uh, if we've not cared before, that we'll start reading about them and studying about them, but most of all, Lord, praying for them, that uh, whatever that time is coming, if it's soon or if it's far away, I have no clue, Uh, but God, it's all working your plan. God, what a God you are. What a God you are. You, this nation, Israel, 4,000 years, and they are the only people in the same land with the same language, with the same name, worshiping the same God. What an evidence for you. What an evidence for you. God, help us to see that not only in history and in current events, but help us to see that in your word. And we'll give you the praise and the honor for all you're doing, not only over there, but right here in Jesus' name. Amen.